And I would invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Zephaniah. It's going to be in that section uh, that we've been in for quite some time called the Minor Prophets. You can actually start at Matthew and work back a few books and you'll find your way to Zephaniah. Uh, we're going to actually look at all three chapters of Zephaniah's prophecy this morning. We live in the Midwest, right? So it's no shock to you that I tell you, I remember some years ago when I was here at the office, here at the church, and we had a, a microburst or a tornado. They kind of mix those up a little bit and uh, come through it, begin to blow in. You know, my, my son at the time was in high school. My one daughter was at Olivet. My other daughter was married, so that was her husband's deal. My wife was working in Carroll Stream, and I'm here in the office. The sirens begin to blare. I go, and, and, and so what do I do? I'm a Kansas boy. I run to the window. I run to the door, and I wanted to watch. Well, I wasn't alone. We had a, a friend, a good friend at the time, who was also on staff, Joel. And next thing you know, Joel and I are standing back here at the back, and we're watching this storm blow through. And, and, and we're not just watching, we're exclaiming. You know, there's the, the branches, the leaves are blowing. And then we looked and we watched one of the trees actually be uprooted and just fall over. We're going, whoa! I mean, we were amazed. Now, I know. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Scott, you should have been hunkered down. I know. I know this wasn't the wisest decision I've ever made in my life, but it was awesome. It was amazing. Now today, if the sirens would go off, I would first instruct all of you to exit quietly and to go into the hallways, not to go into the gym where there's a high ceiling, not to stay here where we have a shingled roof that could be blown off. Go to the hallway where it's low. Don't stand in front of the door. Stay away from the windows. We would have to take some safety precautions. But back then, it was just me. It was like, this was so cool. But there were warnings. How do you respond to warnings? How we respond to a warning tells us a little bit about how important we think that particular warning is. For instance, you're driving in your car, and all of a sudden you look on the dashboard and it says, check engine. Now, I know some people that say, that's not a warning, that's a suggestion. Because it should say, if, they, if it was a real warning, it would say, check engine now. But it doesn't because it never says check engine now. Remember when you were a kid? For some of you, that's like yesterday. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, when I was a kid, sometimes my mom or dad would say, you need to clean your room. Now, I didn't take that as a warning. That was a suggestion. But sometimes my mother, and it was a particularly my mother, would say, you have 30 minutes to clean your room. And now I, and then after that, I am coming down to inspect. That was a warning. Because did I not pass that inspection, I could have lost so many different privileges. Sometimes, and I think this happens with some of our folks who are unfortunate enough to live in coastal areas. Yes, 
they can sometimes post it's 80 and sunny here, but they're not doing that right now. And they get a warning, there's a hurricane coming, and then it turns this way or that way. And, you know, for the last 10 years, we've gotten hurricane warnings, I'm staying put, and then the big one hits. And so, you know, they've had it so many times, it's just, eh, it's not that big of a deal, we'll make it. I think that's what happened to the people of Israel. They had had prophet after prophet after prophet come to them and say, look, God's serious. He is going to clean house. He's going to take care of stuff. He is serious. And they wouldn't listen because, you know, you've been saying that for years and years and years and years and it hasn't happened. I'm just going to keep living my life. I don't need to heed that warning. Today we're going to look at a prophet that we know a little bit about. His name was Zephaniah. We know one thing about him. We know that he was the great, 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 great grandson of King Hezekiah. We know that he prophesied during the reign of Josiah, who was a great, great, great grandson of Hezekiah. So in in some way they were a little bit related. We know that uh, he had a brief but very powerful message. And what we're going to do is we're going to survey this prophet, three chapters, and I'm going to break it down into four sentences. And uh, yet in the midst of those four sentences, we're going to learn about who God is and what God requires of us. So the prophet the, word, the passage begins, Zephaniah 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And from 1-1 all the way to 2-3, God makes one very important point. One day God will clean house. One day, God is going to clean house. Now, you know what? We live here in the 21st century, and preachers have been saying that forever, and you're going, yeah, right. You know what? It's a warning that you ought to heed. One day, God's going to clean house. Some say that this is uh, this passage, chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah through chapter 2, verse 3, is the most descriptive passage dealing with God's righteous anger in the Bible. And and the most unique thing about God's pronouncement here is is that this chapter, chapter 1, doesn't focus on all those other nations out there. It's God talking about his own people, the people that were recipients of so many promises and blessings, the people that he had brought out of Egypt, the people that he had taken care of. And, and, and it's really interesting. God says, you've chosen to go your own way, and I am going to deal with it. You see, sometimes God deals with those of us who say, oh, I follow Jesus, and then we kind of stray. Sometimes he deals with it in natural consequences. Sometimes he brings other people into our lives to help correct us. Sometimes we go through a tragedy that opens our eyes to say, wow, I was going the wrong direction. I don't know how many friends I have now. I've, I've, I heard seminary testimonies when I was a, 
younger of guys that got into serious either automobile accidents or car accidents and it was like they were when they were laying there in the hospital bed uh, one guy said he was in traction he was immobile and then they would had him all locked in and then every now and then they have to kind of rotate the bed and he said it was in those moments that finally God said are you going to finally listen to me I've got a plan for you and you're going the wrong direction sometimes God uses that sometimes God says just wait I'm going to let you go and go, but I will deal with it. And you say, well, what had God's people done that was so bad that he finally says, enough, I'm going to clean house? Well, we find several things they had done. We pick that up in verse 4. He says, I will stretch my hand out against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. One of the things, the biggest thing they had done, and and the big 50-cent word is syncretism. Syncretism is the idea that, you know what? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. So you can bring in this faith and that faith and this thing and that thing, and, and, and it doesn't matter if they're completely opposite. We can just bring it all together. The best example of syncretism is found on some bumper stickers. Have you ever seen them? Think coexist. And there's all these different symbols of different religions. Some of those religions are diametrically opposed. You can't just bring them all in. So what were they doing? I worship Yahweh. But man, I tell you, the Baal festivals, they're great. I'm going to go there too because aren't we just all worshiping the same God? Let's just worship Yahweh and Baal. In verse 5, some had chosen to worship the stars, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts. Now, I just mentioned earlier how awesome it was last night in that rare, clear sky in in northern Illinois to see a beautiful full moon and then just off, as I was looking to it, just off to the right to be able to see that bright star and then to realize later, I was looking at Jupiter. I mean, that's awesome, but you know what? I did not go up on my roof and, and pray to the moon god and pray to the Jupiter god, and I, you know, but they were doing that. Some people do that. A star has been named, by, has been given your name in your honor, you know, and, and, and that's fine if you want to do that, but it's that I, they, were, they were worshiping. The stars have to align. Everything has to be right. They were, they were really following ancient astrology. Also in verse 5, it says, those who swear by Molech. Molech was an awful god. I've told you about Molech. What they found is the statue of Molech stood like this with his arms out, kind of slanted down. And you would offer a male infant to Molech, and that child would roll into a, a burning fire. Hezekiah's father. Zechariah's great, 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 I don't know how many greats, offered his son to Molech. They were doing that. It's okay. You know, we got to appease all the gods. And then others had just said, forget it all. Verse 6, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. They've always said, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to follow my own path. The best person I can trust is me. 
I'm going to forget following the Lord. I'm just going to do my own thing. You know, everything has been the same since the beginning. I'm just following my own thing. And verse 7 begins, be silent. Literally, you could translate that word, hush. Could I be so bold? God says, shut up. Before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated those he's invited. And God says, just stop with all the noise because the day is coming and there's going to be a sacrifice. And what he means here is a sacrifice of false leaders who have led the people in all these ways. God warns a day's coming when those who are complacent, those who deceive themselves into thinking that he's a passive, uninvolved, incapable God will find that he searches them out and everything they've put their hope in will be wiped out. I get it. As I was studying this, I get it. It's not comfortable to hear these kind of words. It's like, Pastor, we're, you were supposed to make us feel good today. It, it doesn't make us feel good. There's, this isn't a warm, fuzzy passage. Some warm fuzzies are coming. Let me just let you know that. But here's the point. God doesn't play games when it comes to worship. I know you've heard me say that before. The people of Judah had heard that time and again. God doesn't play games. And you can keep ignoring God and ignoring God and ignoring God as much as you want, but eventually God's going to deal with it. And for this particular people, they were ignoring God, and God said, you can keep ignoring me, but eventually I'm going to carry you away. You're going to go away, and, and it happened. See, it seems that in the 21st century, we somehow feel that we're immune to God's warnings. You see, I'm all about the cross of Jesus Christ. I believe in that. I believe Jesus, God's son, God in the flesh, God incarnate, died on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid the ultimate price for my sin. I believe that when you put your faith in Christ, you're forgiven and I believe you're not only forgiven, God declares you righteous and you're righteous before him. That's why the writer to Hebrews said we can approach the throne of God boldly because of Christ. I believe that. But I don't believe that all of that freedom then allows me to live my life any way I choose. You see, sometimes we've gotten the idea that when I pray some little prayer that's on the back of a tract, which isn't, none of that's wrong, that I've, I've got this ticket. You know, my wife and I went to see a play recently, and, and what, we, what did we do? We handed them the ticket, they scanned it, and that gave us entrance. And some people get the idea that when I pray and receive Jesus, God scans my ticket, and now I'm going to heaven, all's good. It's like the little boy once, a friend of mine's son, went to his Sunday school teacher, told his Sunday school teacher, this last week I prayed and I asked Jesus to come into my life. And the teacher's like, oh, that's really great. He goes, yeah, and I'm not going to be here next week. Why? Well, I'm going to heaven now. Well, it, it doesn't quite work that way. 
But sometimes we treat it that way. No, when I come to Christ, I am free from the bondage of sin. And as Paul says in Galatians, that I'm now able to use my freedom to serve others. And so the idea is, we get this idea that I can just live what I want. God says, no, I have rules, I have boundaries. Look what they said in verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left in its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing either good or bad. God says, that's what has happened to my people. They become complacent. And I think that happens to you and me sometimes. I, I am grateful to live in a country where religious freedom is, is a, a standard. It gives us the opportunity to meet here with no fear. But it also can get us to be a little complacent. Doesn't matter how I live. I'm in the U.S. of A. Doesn't matter how I live. And God says, no, I'm going to search that out. And so as God goes on, he says nothing. Their wealth is going to be plundered. They're, they're going to have distress. They're going to have anguish. They're, God's going to consume the whole earth. And you're going, what do we do? What do we do? What's our response? Verses Verse 3 of chapter 2 gives us the response. After all of this judgment, what do you do? How do you respond? What am I supposed to do? The warning light is going on. What do I do? Verse 3 of chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Our response should be, when, that, when you understand God's warning, it's just like when you, the warning light goes on your car, you've got to do something about it. What do we do about God's warning? We seek the Lord. That word, seek, is an important word. In fact, I believe, and something I think it's important to keep in mind, the Old Testament prophets always had their finger in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the law, because that's what they were basing it on. I believe that Zephaniah was thinking of what we would know as Deuteronomy chapter 4. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses was telling the people all the way back then when they're just coming out of Egypt, stay away from idolatry. Don't go there. But if you stray and go there, there's a remedy, and the remedy is Deuteronomy 4.29. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and soul. God's not hidden. When we seek him with every fiber of our being, he says, you'll find me. To seek means to search intently. To actually want to find what you're searching for. There's a, a term of endearment that has been given to me by my family. I am called the finder. Uh, it, it grew out of the time when all of our children were at home, and at one point, uh, the girls especially were first, that they had contact lenses. These were the hard contact lenses. By God's grace, I am undefeated in contact lens finds. 
and there were a lot of them. I found every contact lens my daughters ever went, Dad, I dropped my contact. I mean, one time I literally had to take the thing off of the drain to find it, and, you know, it was just, ah. I, and so they, they, I'm, the, I'm the, the finder. And uh, Zephaniah is telling the people the only way you can ex- avoid God's extreme judgment, his extreme house cleaning, is if you determine you will seek him with the same intensity that I sought to find those contact lenses. For me, it was because they were money. And I was not going to spend that money if I didn't have to. God says, seek me. Seek me. Look for me. Long for me. And God will be found. But he wants us to pursue that relationship with him. Only those who have a deep sense of the reality that without God, I am nothing, will seek him. You see, he says, the humble. You who do what he commands, the humble of the land. You know, if you think you're somebody, then you don't think you need God. If you think you are something, you don't need God. Now, I get it. We've talked about it on uh, Wednesday nights. There's important to look at yourself with sober, as Paul says, sound judgment. Now, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, you know, there are a few things I do pretty good. There's a lot of things I don't do well. That's sound judgment. But I don't, if I look in the mirror and go, I am king. I am, I am the best. My wife is the luckiest woman on the planet because she gets to have me. My kids are the luckiest kids on the planet because they get me. You're the luckiest church on the planet because you get me. All of a sudden, I've replaced God with me. God says, when you're humble, you'll seek me. And what will you seek? You'll seek me in obedience. You're going to be obedient to his commands. You'll seek me in righteousness. You'll seek me in humility. When is the time to seek God? Well, now. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 says, you better seek God before the time of trouble, before he judges, before that. You know, you better seek God now. You know, in other words, when things are going well, and you know, that's, what, that's our other temptation. When things are going good, it's easy to drift. When the car's working, the bills are paid, the kids are not causing too much trouble, uh, you know, the retirement account's going back up, which it's not right now, you know, and, and these days it's great. Oh, nah, I, I, you know what, God, you're so gracious. I'm going to take some time off from God because everything's going, no, it's when everything is going great is the time to seek God because then you have stability when things go bad. Well, that's the first sentence. Second sentence. When God cleans house, it is thorough. The rest of chapter 2 is God pronouncing his judgment, but this time he now turns to the other nations. He's already judged his people. Now he turns to the nations. In verses 4 through 7, he focuses on the Philistines, that tribe that lived along the Mediterranean coast that were always a thorn in the side of Israel. He, in verses 8 through 11, he preaches against Moab, the, the descendants of Lot and Ammon. In, in verse 12, it's Cush. In verses 13 to 15, it's our friends, the Assyrians. 
And we could simply go, well, yeah, of course, those are heathen nations. Of course God's going to exercise judgment on them. But I think the key to this entire section is found in verses 10 and 11. Chapter 2, verse 10, this is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow to him, all of them in their own lands. No nation, not even our own, no people, no culture, who acts in arrogance and pride against God or God's people will be spared. The context here is referring specifically to the Jews, but in a broader context, it's all those who call on the name of the Lord. We live in a world that will grow and will continually grow increasingly unsafe for Christ followers. And God says, I will act in my time. But what's God's desire? God's desire is that the nations would worship him. In fact, I would urge you sometime to read Isaiah 60. I think it's another passage that Zephaniah may have been thinking about. Isaiah 60 is talking about that time when the nations seek God, a time when, they, when all of those things that were used for bad are, are retooled and used for good. It's an amazing time in which they come. there's actually a book entitled When the Kings Come Marching In by a former seminary president, Richard Mao, and he draws that title from that passage that one day the kings will come marching in and they will come marching in to acknowledge that God is the king of kings. And so that's what God's desire is. One day the nations will worship him. And you say, how do I respond to that warning when there are no free passes? That means I have to trust God for everything. I don't want to go like those nations who depended on themselves. I don't want to be like those Jews who depended on themselves in Jerusalem. I want to be dependent upon God. To live in the reality of life that what I have in this world is not all there is. There is so much more. And that brings us to our third sentence. God is intolerant of human pride. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Zephaniah turns his attention back to Judah and specifically Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented the center of worship. And it had become a place that you wouldn't want to put on a brochure and say, hey, move to Jerusalem. I read today that Naperville is considered the safest city in Illinois and the fourth safest city in the nation. Jerusalem, well, here's how Zephaniah describes them. A little bit different than Naperville. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every new day 
he does not fail, yet the unrighteous know no shame. Not one of the places you want to move your family to. And, and what makes it so bad is these were the people that had claimed to know God. That said, we are children of, we are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And repeatedly in verses 1 through 11, verse 2 that we've seen, verse 7, they don't accept correction. And when correction is offered, they don't, they don't even receive the punishment. They just reject anything that God says he'll do. The statement in these sections re- remind us that, that God is going to be a God of discipline. Verse 8, I'll pour out my wrath. Verse 8, again, the whole world will be consumed or swept away. Verse 9, purify, I will purify their lips. I will remove those who rejoice in pride. You see, again, it's that pride that doesn't accept correction. It's pride that doesn't take God at His word. It's pride that causes you and me to go our own way. And God is intolerant of pride. So what do I do? How do I respond? Is God, God is asking me to search my heart and, and I need to ask God to search my heart. I need to ask God to do what you need to do to remove pride from me. And God wants to do that. And in fact, that brings us to the good part of Zephaniah. You see, after all of that, God says, here's my, here's my heart. Yeah, I, I look at God, I mean, I'm a parent, all right? I, I've had to discipline my kids. I, I've, I've, had, I've had to take privileges away. I've, I, I've seen... You know, my one of my my all of my kids just why they showed it in different ways, totally distraught at something that we had taken away from them. I don't like to do that. In fact, in our family, I'm known as the one with soft side love. I mean, my wife is a wonderful mom; she's excellent. But I'm always the one to go. But let's figure out a way to make it better. No, they have to, we have to stick by the rules, you know. And so it's, we're, we're, we're different that way. Uh, but I know it's necessary. You see, because I, what I long for more is restoration. I want relationship with my kids. And the last sentence that summarizes this book, this chapter, is in the last part of chapter 3. God delights in all who humbly trust him. You get this distinct change of tone when you get to chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Don't you love that? I'm going to purify their hearts. They're all going to call on my name and they're going to serve me shoulder to shoulder. Pardon another football illustration. I I think it's really interesting in a football, at the beginning of a football game, if you get to see the uh, coin toss, these big old guys 
come out, and they, are, they have their arms linked, and they all walk out together, you know, and then when they're done, they all walk back together, and it's like they are sending a message, we're unified, we are, work, we are shoulder to shoulder, we are shoulder to shoulder, in fact, sometimes you'll see the the linemen, the biggest guys, right? And they're getting line, and they're out there, and and they all hold hands as they walk up and get ready to take their positions. They let go, to, but but there's that idea: we're unified. It helps them with their spacing and everything else. It just amazes me. And and, and what a, what a word picture! God says, "Here's my desire. I want to delight in you. I I long for that day when you." Praise my name, and together you're in unison, shoulder to shoulder, whether it's, and he talks about these other nations from Cush and Jerusalem, and you're all going to come, you're going to bring me offerings, you're going to worship together, it's going to be wonderful. And, you know, the kings are going to come marching in. And he says, I'm going to leave you within you the meek and the humble and the remnant of Israel who will trust in the name of the Lord. There's this tone that God says, I want that. I want people that will trust me, that will love me, that will work together with me, that will work in harmony with one another. Those are my people. And I think the key verse in this whole section is verse 17. Listen to this. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. What a word picture. God is with you. When you and I humbly submit to him, he is with us. God is the mighty warrior. He is the warrior who saves He died on the cross through Jesus. He died on the cross on our sins. He saves us. And when you submit to him, you sense that protection. But I love this. God delights in you and rejoices over you with singing. I am in awe of the fact that the God of the universe who created the moon and Jupiter and this earth, who gave you and me breath, I am in awe of the fact that the God of the universe says, I want to rejoice over you with singing. Wow. What an amazing thing. I once read about a, a gentleman who had a, was dealing with a, a spiritual director, and, and, and he would meet him about once a month, but they would meet at a certain place, and, and they would, it was by a, a seashore, and, and as they would walk together, his, when his spiritual director saw him and saw him walking along the seashore, he began to jump up and down in excitement, just so excited to see his friend. And, and that's kind of my word picture here. How awesome one day to walk through the gates of heaven and Jesus jumping up and down to see you. That's the God of the universe who says, I delight in you when you humble yourself. And if that's even such a great word picture, another one that we might relate to more is in verse 20. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. Every one of us has an image 
of what we believe home should be. For some of us, I know, home brings back hard memories, painful memories. But even in those, you know deep down what you wanted it to be. I once heard an illustration of an individual that grew up in just an awful home. It was painful, abusive, and, and yet in the neighborhood there was another family that, that seemed to have a great home, and, and sometimes this one kid would sneak out of his house at night and go sit under the window of the neighbor's house while they were having dinner and just listen to them laugh and share stories and talk to one another, longing for that. That's the kind of home I think God is, Zephaniah is thinking about. I'll bring you home. I'll bring you home to a place of acceptance, to a place of safety, to a place of rest, to a place of joy, to a place of love, to a place that when you show up, even unannounced, you are rejoiced over. Got a phone call just this week from my eldest. They had had a situation in their neighborhood. They're only about 30 minutes away. They had had a situation, a gas leak. The neighborhood had to be evacuated. My phone rings. Hey, can you handle six tonight? Yes, you bet. We'll figure it out. Come home, bring the kids. Yes, the answer's always yes. Get a call from my son. Hey, we have a wedding up in Wisconsin. Can we stay the night? Yes. <laughs> you know, years ago when they had the derecho in Iowa, I get the call. I think they were in Davenport. We're on your way to your place. We don't have any power. 14 days later, they were still there. The answer was still yes. Maybe tomorrow, but yes. <laughs> You know, that's, that's home. And God says, that's the word picture I want you to have. I rejoice over you when you come home. That's what God desires. Yes, God knows he has to judge. He knows that. He doesn't shy away from that. But his heart is home. His heart is rejoicing. His heart is welcoming you home. What everything that Zephaniah prophesies here did take place, but not right away. But I think there's an interesting parallel story. You see, Zephaniah tells us he prophesied during the reign of Josiah. I believe it was probably near the end of the reign of Josiah, but Josiah gives us a word picture of somebody who actually led the way Zephaniah said they should lead. You'll find his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Just imagine that. I wanted to be king when I was eight years old, but it didn't happen. Eight years old. By the time he was 16, he began to seek God as a teenager. He began to seek God with his whole heart. Now, he did not come from a family where God was honored. His father and his grandfather were wicked as wicked could be. But he had heard about his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. 
who was a good king. And somehow that influenced him. By the time he was 20, he began to put together some edicts and make some commands and begin to purify the land. At the age of 26, the temple was being cleaned and repaired and and they found the book of the law and they brought the book of the law to to Josiah and they read it to him and, and he realized how much they had strayed from God. He tore his robe. He said, take this to the prophet and see what the prophet says. And they took it to a prophet. Her name was Huldah. And she said, this is what God says. And she challenged him to continue with the the change and to bring about what God had said. And Josiah actually reinstituted the Passover. It hadn't been done for years. I think I read 30,000 sheep were were, uh, sacrificed. and, And he provided that for the people. And you know what? All those changes are parallel to what Zephaniah is saying. If you seek God, you seek Him with your whole heart, you'll be found, He will be found by you. You humble Him, he will, he will purify you. But it has to be more than external. God delighted in Josiah. He delayed judgment. But Josiah was the last godly king of Judah. After his reign, there were four other kings. Their reigns lasted respectively respectively three months, then 11 years, then three months and 10 days, then 11 years. From Josiah to Babylon wiping out Jerusalem was 22 and a half years. Josiah tried to get people to seek the Lord. They did it externally. It didn't make a difference in their heart. That's why God says, when you seek me, seek me with all your heart. God means what he says. What do we do? Well, I think God's calling you and me today through his word to put all of our trust in him. All of it. I mean, you know what? There's... Sitting right here this morning, just taking some quiet time, thinking about this passage and saying, God, am I really trusting you with everything? There's a lot of stuff I depend on. I want to make sure that I'm depending on him first. Listen to what God says. Believe that he's with you. Let him cleanse you from pride. And that's a daily thing. Try to wholeheartedly do whatever he puts before you. And know this. God will honor all who obey him. And today, as you follow him, he delights in you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for prophets like Zephaniah who were courageous who were willing to say things that weren't popular or what we would say user-friendly, but did so with courage, trusting you every step of the way. Lord, may we be those people.
may we learn what it means to trust you every day. And it is a process, and we will stumble, and we will fall, and we will fail. But may we realize that you're the God that says that when we've sinned and we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive, and you will raise us up. You will cleanse us from unrighteousness. Thank you for who you are, God. In Jesus' name, amen.